0: Hey everyone and welcome to this edition of Snake Oilers. My name's Patrick Gray. For those of you who don't know what Snake Oilers is, it is a wholly sponsored podcast series we do here at Risky Biz HQ a few times a year where vendors pay us to record these interviews so they can pitch their products to you, the listeners. And we have three vendors pitching for you today. Uh, Code42 does insider threat stuff. Uh, Kroll Security is gonna be talking about its MSSP offering. Uh, And they're well known in the IR space, but they're doing a big push into MSSP stuff these days uh, with their edge being an integration between the MSSP part of the business and the IR, the incident response part of the business. But first up, we're going to talk uh, to a vendor that is hotter than Hansel, uh, automation startup Tynes. Now, look, I've been doing this job uh, a long time, as many of you would know, and I can only think of a few times in my entire career that I've heard of a startup getting this much buzz and this much love. Tynes does what they call no code automation for security teams, and I gotta tell you, their users sound less like satisfied customers and more like cult members. People absolutely love what Tynes is selling and the feedback from other Risky Biz sponsors who have customers who use Tynes to interact with their solutions has been extremely positive also. Tynes founder Owen Hinshey joined me to pitch the product and uh, here he is.
1: Yeah, so my name is Owen. I'm founder and CEO of Tynes. Um, the company now is about four and a half years old. I founded Tynes in 2018 as a first-time founder and entrepreneur. Never had any grand ambitions of founding a company, honestly. Um, previous to founding Tynes, I spent about 15 years as a security practitioner, so primarily working in fairly technical roles like instant response, SecOps, security engineering, threat management. Uh, roles like that in companies like eBay, PayPal, and DocuSign here in Ireland, where I'm based, and also in the Bay Area for a number of years as well. Um, it was really while at DocuSign that I felt the need for a platform like Tines. So at the time, I was like running security operations, had a team of like 50 people spread across the world, all incredible practitioners, right? Knew their jobs inside out, could respond to any type of incident, um, really passionate, well motivated, uh, and well compensated people. But as that company was growing and as our ability to detect malicious behavior in our environments was improving, the amount of repetitive ops work on their plate was also increasing really quickly. And by repetitive ops work, it's all that Sanders stuff that you'll be used to, like running down phishing emails, responding to EDR alerts, updating tickets, making sure that infrastructure we were spinning up was in compliance, et cetera. Et cetera. And when we benchmarked it, we found that about 80%, percent eight zero percent of my team's time was spent doing something they'd already done that day. Now, aside from the fact that that's a really crappy way to allocate capital, it's also a terrible experience for these passionate, experienced security engineers. And it's also, frankly, the reason we invented computers, right? So that people wouldn't have to do this repetitive work over and over again. My challenge was that, again, these people were security practitioners and not software engineers. And so they couldn't write the code that we required to automate these processes, to glue these various pieces of technology together, to automatically update tickets, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, And although one or two of them probably could have written a little bit of Python or some Bash or PowerShell here or there, we didn't want... What were literally the company's most mission critical processes hanging off these scripts that were like written by amateurs, hard to manage, weren't logging, weren't being monitored, etc. Well, so and then there's in always the 20- um,
0: there's also the uh, you know that person gets hit by a bus problem, right? Which is real. Yeah. That's a real problem.
1: Totally, totally, yeah. <laughs> as like as 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 depressing as that is, it's actually a genuine concern. Um, <laughs> and so in in 2017, we said, man, someone someone must have solved this problem. So we started looking around for tools that we could buy that would allow my team who knew their jobs inside out automate their own repetitive tasks end to end regardless of the complexity, the technology stack, et without writing code. And over the course of about six months, we looked at a dozen different platforms and hated every single one of them. Like we couldn't believe how expensive these tools were, how, um. Like how rigid they were, how bloated they were. And so out of sheer, frustra- for sheer frustration and being the petulant young, young and in inverted commas, Irish man I am, I said, you know what? I could do a better job of this myself. And so founded Tines really with the ambition of building the platform that I wished had been available for my team. That's it. Yeah. And essentially yeah. that boiled down to a tool that would allow anyone automate anything without having to write code.
0: I mean, it seems like the only places where we've seen successful automation have been like you know some products have built Mm. automation for their product right and and that kind of works okay but it's when you start trying to glue everything together right when you've when you've got to have your seam talking to your ticketing system and doing a bit of this and doing a bit of that that's when it starts you know getting a little bit unruly right
1: yeah totally and i think as well like it, from our experiences, this is probably the most important thing I'll say all day. Like automation is literally only effective in any case when it's implemented by the people who are doing the job themselves. right? It can't be the vendors' pro serve. and it can't be a software engineering team who sit like three rows across the across the hall. It's got to be the folks doing the work day in day out who are empowered to automate it themselves. And that's, when when you do that, when you equip equip these people with the skills and technologies that they need, that's really when the magic happens. Like, genuinely, you get to see some amazing things. Because, honestly, they're the only people who truly understand the edge cases. They're the folks who know that, like, hey, on a Tuesday morning, this notification needs to be sent over here rather than over here. But on a Wednesday morning, we can send it down, like, the, the happy path.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I can already tell that there's listeners there thinking, I've been fooled by pictures like this before because we bought some automation thing and to get it to do anything halfway useful, we had to use or learn some completely indecipherable like custom scripting language just for that automation solution, right? (laughs) So that's been an issue with those sort of things in the past. Like what have you done to, you know, what have you done to to actually make it something that can be used by practitioners who are looking to simplify their, their daily lives?
1: Yeah. When I founded the company... The great innovation was that we had kind of discovered that any process, right, regardless of who's doing it, what it does, how complex the technology stack, like, etc., is really just a series of actions, right? For phishing, it's receive email, extract indicators, push the virus total, create ticket, very simplified, but it's just a series of actions. And our bet was that there has to be like a lowest common denominator of actions that we would need to support, like a small amount of things that are required to automate any process. And so what we discovered was that there's actually only seven types of action that are performed across any enterprise process. Right, and so everything that you do in Tines, regardless of whether it's employee onboarding, vulnerability management, EDR, phishing, etc., is always just these seven building blocks, these seven primitives configured in slightly different ways. And so once you actually know how to configure these seven things, that's all the knowledge you will ever need to automate any process. And so ever. And you've done this. Innov- and
0: you've done this like pointy clicky, haven't you? Correct.
1: Correct. Yeah. So and and that's the that's the beautiful thing here is that. When you think about programming languages, there's always this like set of primitives that you need to, just need to understand. And then once you know those seven or once you know those primitives and those like basic concepts, you can do anything, right? You have a complete understanding of everything. From my experience with other automation platforms, there's always additional things that you need to learn, right? So it's a case of like, all right, cool. I I've, I've, I've figured out how to automate phishing. Fantastic. But those skills that you've acquired through automating phishing aren't you can't apply them then to EDR, or you but can't this apply is, them this to is, onboarding. This
0: is kind of what I was getting at earlier when I was talking mm. about like, you know, some company out there that does email security stuff might have a reasonable phishing automation mm. uh, workflow, yeah. but it doesn't do anything for the rest of your, like it's trying to do something universal. That's where it gets a bit hard, right? Which is what you're trying to do.
1: Yeah, and that's where all our innovation has been is like, creating this platform that is so easy to use that anybody can use it, but is also extraordinarily powerful. So that kind of like simple but not simplistic is a little bit of like a mantra we have internally.
0: Okay, so walk us through some specific use cases, right, of of, like, just give us your top three most common use cases, because as much as you could sit there and tell me about something really, really sophisticated um, that Tynes can do, and I'm sure you've strung together some complicated use cases that you sit back and you just go, wow, right, like, can't believe we actually managed to pull that off. Um, I'm guessing (laughs) that like 90% of your business are the top three dumb, horrible things that people just want to automate away. So what are those things?
1: Yeah, certainly initially it starts with like a handful of things. And so they're the classic ones like we see phishing a lot. We see like security alerts a lot and we see security chatbots a lot. So they're, they're like the three things that when people buy tines, they're trying to solve one of those things. And once they've solved one of those things, they quickly move on to a variety of other stuff like vulnerability management, privileged access management, VPNs, suspicious logins, all these other things. But typically it'll start with like, hey, we've got this like weird phishing response thing that we need to do, or we want to start doing distributed decisions through security chatbots. And essentially what that means is that, you know taking two steps back, one of the most time-consuming parts of my job as a practitioner was reaching out to people in the company and saying, hey, did you just run sudo at this time? Or did you just change your password? Or did you just log on to the VPN? Like It's so freaking time-consuming and low value, but has to be done because if in the event that it actually is malicious, you're kind of banjaxed. Um, and so what times will allow you to do is essentially take those... Um, take those decisions and put them on the plate of the person who's closest to the problem, i.e. the person who did just run sudo or who did just like change their password or who did just authenticate to the VPN from like a weird location. And so what will happen is Times will receive those alerts from like your SIM or CloudTrail or any other point solution. It'll enrich it in some way by figuring out, okay, this email address associated with this uh, VPN connection is associated with this Slack ID and I know that through Okta or Slack or whatever. And then you put the request to the user saying, hey, Patrick, we noticed that you just logged onto the VPN from an unusual location. Can you confirm that this is you? And they will say, yeah, that's me. And they'll and that will go back to Tynes and Tines will say, okay, cool. Thanks for confirming. I'm gonna send you a duo push or I'm gonna send you an Octa Verify or something like that, just so I know. And if at any point that breaks down, like the user says, no, that wasn't me or they don't verify the prompt in a certain amount of time, escalate it to a security analyst. But do not put that on a security analyst plate unless it's failed these initial checks.
0: What's another one that you can think of? Just you know, I'm just thinking common use cases that are going to make some of the listeners dream a little that maybe
1: uh, <laughs> they so don't like, have to of, do this one, annoying like, thing anymore. <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorite ones, but also like probably one of the most boring is like vulnerability management, right? Like, See, so this I, is, I and get... this is
0: what I'm talking about, Owen. Okay, because mm. what you told me with the chatbot, that's great. And I can imagine yeah. that that's going to save people time. But now you're talking about the real drudgery right? Yeah, the real yeah, drudgery. Yeah. And if you can make that go away, like it's the less, it's the least sexy use case, but yeah. it's the one that's going to get you purchase orders, right? So tell oh, me about totally. the full management <laughs> one.
1: And, and, and honestly, like, you know, initially, like, on, like, to be quite honest, Patrick, when we started this company and people used to tell me, hey, we want to automate full management, I'd almost be a little bit disappointed because I'm kind of like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> I, I understand how this is an absolute slog, but also it's like not that terribly exciting for us to like, kind of like talk about But genuinely, it is life-changing. It is like yeah. truly like life-changing when you take all of a sudden, you know, a Qualys report that contains like 20,000 vulnerabilities and you have a team of four people whose job it is is to like import that into Excel, filter it and like um, assign it to the individual teams who own these assets. And so what we typically see our customers do is they will either receive a vulnerability scan through some tool or they'll have times go and kick off a vuln scan through a vuln scanner API, they'll wait, times will wait until that scan is complete and it will download the results. And once it has these results, it'll go through like either a rather simplistic uh, enrichment uh, process like, okay, in the event that this is a high priority alert, go and create like a critical ticket inside Jira or whatever. Or it'll do something complex like it'll roll up the um the vulnerabilities and assign it to the right team but instead of creating individual tickets it'll go and create one ticket with the full list of vulnerabilities it'll also do things like hey we've got all these vulnerabilities check if there's a ticket already open and if there's a ticket already open don't go and create a new ticket just add a comment to the existing ticket saying hey this this issue is still open etc but when you talk to security practitioners and you say, hey, like, what's the most time-consuming parts of your job? It's always stuff like that, right? It's always yeah. these things that have existed for 15 years. It's never the fun, super exciting stuff like, oh, privilege assets management. It's always like vul management and um, compliance and um, phishing. Those are the things that are really time-consuming.
0: Owen, oh, we've run out of time, but... That was fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, You guys have signed on as a sponsor for next year. uh, So we'll be seeing and hearing from uh, hearing you more uh, next year. Um, Yeah. All really interesting stuff. Welcome aboard and uh, great to chat to you.
1: Thank you, my friend. Take care. Have a good one.
0: That was Owen Hinshey of Tynes there and you can find them at tynes.io. And yeah, as I say, the feedback I consistently hear about Tynes is just overwhelmingly positive. So I suspect it'll be worth your time looking into what it is that they're actually doing, what it is that they're selling. So yeah, go check them out. It is time for our next snake oiler now, and we're chatting with Code42. Code42 makes software that's designed to tackle data leakage, basically. Uh, You know, you could call it insider threat detection, or you could call it DLP, like what, call it whatever you want, Uh, but the idea is simple. You install their agent on user workstations, and that agent will monitor what data is going where, and in what sort of volume, right? So one thing they've done uh, with this that I think is really interesting is integrated the product with what they call micro-training. So if the software detects someone uh, taking their work home via Dropbox or something like that out of policy, it'll automatically email a video to that user uh, you know, they'll say, hey, here's a video on how, on, on why we don't do that, why that's out of policy. And by the way, you know, if you want to do this sort of thing, here's how you can do it with the sort of enterprise-sanctioned service that our organization uh, supports. So this has a twofold effect. Uh, firstly, it helps actually educate the user on what the right way to do things actually is. But it also kind of shows them that there are detections in place for this sort of thing, and that might discourage them from trying to scoop up stuff they shouldn't in the first place. Dave Capuano is the SVP of product at Code42, and he joined me for this interview, and I started off by asking him to explain just in really simple terms what it is Code42 actually sells. Here he is.
2: We have a solution that is kind of the best of what you would get from a DLP, from a CASB, from UEBA, and then we have a secondary product we plug in as part of our control framework around microlearning, security education and awareness. Our deployment for the product set is um, we deploy an agent to, uh, to an endpoint, um, to watch across a broad set of, um, vectors, um, that data moves across. We also integrate with APIs from cloud providers. So G drive, OneDrive, Box, Dropbox, um, to be able to give kind of a hybrid view of data moving from the endpoint to data moving to corporate controlled cloud resources and then, um, allow customers to detect when that data moves outside of trust boundaries that they've defined.
0: Now this is an interesting thing, right? Because DLP, I remember there was one RSA conference. I think it was you know a long time ago now, where it was the RSA year where everyone was talking about DLP, right? And DLP was going to be the next big thing. You know, mm-hmm. people quickly discovered that DLP projects are fiddly things, right? And they you know they take a lot of time, and you don't always get great results, and they tend to slow people down in their day to day work. And um, you know the buzz sort of got sucked out of DLP uh, pretty quick. But we are seeing um, more and more. Products like this, right? Which which tend to focus more on what a user is doing rather than trying to understand the information that they're that they're moving around. Just look at their behaviors.
2: I mean, we 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 see that, but we think about data as kind of the the center of everything. And then as you and we're very good at watching data traverse across, you know, endpoint to cloud and infrastructure, across a broad set of vectors, and then intersecting that with users right so instead of trying to figure out what is normal for a user which with the drivers that are really you know pushing our business which is all data and digital transformation is digitized all data collaboration is the norm today right i mean dlp 20 years ago was all about tell me what your critical data is and you know we'll prevent it from getting out the the gates of the castle well you know the castle is now distributed all over the globe, with the pandemic and work from home, that distribution, um, and and then the other driver that we have that we see in the market that, that that's driving the need for solutions like ours is what you see in the job market, people people changing jobs on uh, a tremendous frequency, and you know what we've seen from our data from our customers, parting employees are the ripe candidates to try and take information with them when they go from one job to another because they think it's going to benefit, you know, them in their new position. They don't always feel like it's company intellectual property. They don't always think it's, you know, they think they worked on it. They own it. They should be able to take it.
0: I did notice when I was having a look at your website that, uh, you know, it's a pretty prominent feature that you're doing uh, uh, detections around employees who are going to leave. Are you actually doing detections on who is planning to leave by looking at like, you know, the amount of time they're spending on LinkedIn and stuff like that? Or is it more that HR will tell someone, hey, this person's going to leave and then that sets a flag in your system and you keep a sort of closer watch on them?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing to think about it, departing employees is by the time they've given notice, you know, they they usually if they're thinking about taking data. They've already taken data. Right. Um, but it is a it is a big indicator for us. We do get information from HRIS systems so we can populate it from workday you know, um, into associated watch lists. You know, we're not doing the what you would consider the traditional performance management stuff. You know, what sites are people surfing to? You know, we do have some uh, behavioral indicators in the product set that might look for things like housekeeping, people cleaning up systems, those kinds of things. Um, we look more for for um, data movement. You know, as you think about people who are leaving the business and think they're entitled to information, you know, they're not very stealthy usually, right? I mean, they're, they're yeah. moving information from a system. They're moving information from a system to you know their personal cloud storage or. Forwarding stuff from their corporate email to their personal email, you know, again, either they don't understand the policy, they're ignoring the policy, or they don't think anyone's watching the store. What we see a, a lot is that a lot of people don't think anyone's watching the store. And what has attracted customers to go 42 is, one, the visibility that we have in the product set, right? If you think about our approach, we don't require a policy definition in the product. We start watching data and scoring That associated day movement, data movement from the minute we install on an endpoint and connect to, uh, to the cloud APIs. Um, and then customers work with us to start to put in locations of trust. You know, they expect data to move from a corporate endpoint to their corporate cloud repository. They don't expect data to move from their corporate endpoint to an unsanctioned cloud repository. Right. They might have relationships with partners. the, the Dropbox
0: problem, we'd call it, right?
2: Absolutely.
0: Yep. Yeah. yep. And I yep. guess if you're an endpoint agent, you're going to see people dropping things onto USB devices, et cetera, right?
2: USB, we'll see it across AirDrop. We'll see source code movement through, through Git pushes. So, you know, as we go in and talk to customers, depending on the market they're in, you know, they have broad problems that they deal with, like departing employees, and then they usually have some vertical things that they're interested in. So when we deal with companies that are fast moving selling a lot of product they're interested in protecting customer client list information. So we have a connector to salesforce.com so we can we can monitor if people are downloading customer list reports from their salesforce instance to an unmanaged corporate device. Those are things that are interesting. Well that's um, why you
0: need the API API integrations, right? Like that's Absolutely. Yeah.
2: That's where, that's
0: where this thing goes from being, oh, that's a simple tool to construct to being actually quite fiddly.
2: Yep. Yeah, well, yeah, I, you know, and, and you know, as the, so the kind of the paradigm changes, the visibility that, that, that people get with the product set. And then we typically have lots of conversations and help them evolve their associated program. Because again, at the end of the day, they're dealing with their employee base, their traditional security people, they're, they're not used to leading with empathy. They're used to dropping the hammer on folks. Right, and so we're trying to teach them like how to take and build a program that's focused on you know giving employees the benefit of the doubt because we all know probably seventy percent of the, the stuff that goes on is accidental. They didn't understand the policy.
0: Oh, look, man, you know, easy you know? seventy, even more than seventy percent of Lord. it is people yep. taking work home because they're going to work on an unmanaged device and they just got to get stuff done. Right, like that is absolutely it. And if you can. Uh, if you can actually build some, you know, sensitive training around that, I guess that's what that's the training bit you offer, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've we've done it in, you know, kind of integrated in product, you know, we sell it as a standalone product, but we've also, we also done it as in-product integration. So that's very specific to the use case. So, you know, if we detect data moves from, a, you know, an endpoint to Dropbox and we're a Google shop, we'll send them a micro learning video that triggered off of that alert the fact that, hey, we saw that you moved the data. Just a reminder, Google Drive is our corporate cloud repository. We saw the data got moved to Dropbox. You know, just a reminder, that's not a sanctioned tool. Make and here's sure here's
0: it. a video explaining why sort of thing, right? And that goes got right, right out to the user, does
2: it? Goes it right goes right out to the user. And so that you know that's part of the how do you deal with low, moderate, you know, the, the 70, 80% of the world that, that is just doing stuff that because they're trying to be more efficient, you know, they're trying to move fast. Because look, at the end of the day, what do CEOs like mine care about? Yes, they care about the security, right? And they want security as an enabler, but they care about selling product, driving ARR, growing the business, right? And so, you know, one of our, one of our one of the things we talk about a lot is the collaboration culture because, you know, think about the number of utilities and tools and applications you have now to move data and connect with, with people and, and information, right? And the whole mentality of, I'm going to shut, I'm going to shut everything down and let you work through, you know, email or work through one channel. It's just people are too smart. They can move, yeah. they're going to get around it, you know, because it's just not, it doesn't make their job easy.
0: I guess my last question is, you know, quite often we see people buying a control in response to an event, right? And mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, is there a type of event that happens that tends to get people in your front door? Like, you know, director of sales leaves, takes the whole customer list, you know, is that is that a sort of thing that's a path to sales for you?
2: For for, for, for sure. You know, we, 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 yeah. see, we, we, we see engineers taking source code, we see salespeople taking customer lists, you know, one of the interesting ones we've seen a bunch of times are, are people you wouldn't think about. People taking HR data, HR salary data, when they leave and go to a competitor because they want to then go back to the company and poach and they know exactly how much they make, how much yeah. they can make the new offer at. So we, we, we we've seen a lot a lot of that information. Um, just standard corporate sh-
0: yeah, no, 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 no doubt, no doubt. All right. Well, Dave Capuano, thank you so much for joining me uh, for that conversation. I got to say, I found the, you know, the human side, the human element of all of this. Uh, that was that was actually really interesting. Uh, so, thank you for that, and uh, best of luck to you.
2: Thanks, Patrick. See you.
0: That was Dave Capuano of Code42 there. Big thanks to him for that. And yeah, I do find it interesting uh, that these days the way people do DLP is to monitor user actions instead of just trying to classify everything. And, um, you know, seems like seems like a good idea to me. Uh, but what do I know? I'm just a guy in front of a microphone. <laughs> okay, it is time for our third and final snake oiler uh, for this edition, Kroll, that's Kroll with a K-R-O-L-L. Uh, Kroll is a corporate investigations and risk consultancy that's been around for something like 50 years. And uh, I did not know this until recently, uh, but Kroll is actually a pretty significant player in the incident response field. So when they first reached out to us, like, Honestly, I hadn't heard of them, uh, but I asked around and they actually have a really good reputation for incident response. Uh, And yeah, now they're doing MSSP stuff and that's what they're here to talk about. So as you'll hear, uh, they reckon that their experience in incident response gives them an edge as an MSSP. When their SOC kicks out a hairy alert, uh, that alert actually gets actioned by the company's full-time incident responders. So here's Pearson Clare, Managing Director of Kroll's Cyber Risk Practice, talking about how the company approaches its MSSP offering. Enjoy.
3: You know, most MDR companies do tactical response. That's your immediate containment actions, your traditional response, isolation of endpoints, cleaning of persistence, removal of binaries, and we do all of that. But that's where most MDR vendors stop. So. Where everyone else stops is where we're really just beginning. We threat hunt on the indicators of compromise. We do the root cause analysis. We do the proper forensics. Many of your listeners are probably familiar with the tool that we've released to the community called CAPE, the Crowl Artifact Parser and Extractor. And that's what lets us go even deeper to help get actionable results. To help, one, remove the attacker from the network, and two, figure out how they got in, how they got there, clean it up so that the attacker can't come back in with that same path, that there aren't any more exposed credentials, and take those lessons learned to make sure it doesn't happen again.
0: Yeah, now, uh, I understand that, uh, like, you know, just before we were recording, one of the things that you said is something that you do a bit differently is like some MDR companies just aren't very good at responding to incidents on like unmanaged endpoints, for example, right? And that's where the incident response expertise comes in handy.
3: Exactly. And, and so let's take an example of that unmanaged endpoint. We might see a DC sync attack happen. And you know as well as I do that a DC sync attack does not make for a good day. But let's say that's the very first piece of telemetry that we get in is a, an attacker on a domain controller deep in your network doing a DC synchronization event. Now that tells us a couple things. One, a very large swath of credentials are probably out the door, but we need to walk that back. A traditional MDR provider may say, that came from an unmanaged endpoint. Good luck. For us, that's not how we approach this. For us, we want to figure out where that attacker came from. We're going to use all of the EDR telemetry we have available. We may combine that with your SIM data. We're also going to combine that with host-based forensic analysis. Host-based forensic analysis from endpoints where we have the EDR tool. And in some cases, host-based analysis from computers where we don't have an EDR tool, if we can get that data. Because what we want to do is figure out how the attacker got there, walk back that full attack chain, and make sure that they are completely ejected and that remediation has occurred. Because certainly with the DC sync attack, we know that an attacker probably has the keys, to the kingdom. They have perhaps an encrypted state, but every single user credential, every single domain admin credential, service accounts and the like, where we then need to help that organization build a structured internal remediation plan to get all of those accounts reset to reduce the risk. So we use the exact same responders for both our incident response and our MDR service. And what that means is those exact same incident responders 24-7, 365, within 15 minutes of an alert being fired, you will have an incident responder looking at that alert, looking for what's the risk to your organization and how do we start backing it out. And they have a team of 600 people throughout all of Kroll that they can rely upon so that if we need to burst, we have this massive team that we can bring to bear and that's all included. The crawl responder capability is unlimited MDR for covered endpoints. And what that means is if we go very deep on this, clients know that we will respond, we will bring the cavalry in order to get their network to where it needs to be. This is a partnership. This is not a black box. We're talking to these clients on a frequent basis, usually on a monthly basis as a touch base, if not more frequent than that. And so we know their infrastructure, they know us, and that means that when something happens, and the goal is to keep it certainly very small, but nonetheless, when we give recommendations, they're tailored to their organization, they're tailored to the event that's occurred, making it in a way that's the appropriate lift for the IT team, not taking a scorched earth approach.
0: Now you acquired a company about eighteen months ago, which uh, you know provides a lot of the core tech uh, around this that lets you do some of this MDR stuff. Um, you know, d- tell us a bit about what what you know why you needed to buy that company to scale up your MDR. Like, what was it that they brought?
3: Yeah, so people know crawl for incident response. We acquired Redscan out of the UK. People knew Redscan for their network detection, their SIM capabilities. And what we saw in this acquisition was just this perfect marriage of two different technology companies, two different uh, consulting companies, two different sets of just really bright people. And what this has allowed us to do is combine two different approaches to security to help our clients uh, really just keep attackers out. It gives this really flexible platform for pulling in so many different sources of data, including threat intelligence. What we know is that so many different clients have all of these different really great tools. Really great tools fire a great number of alerts. So how do you deal with the alert fatigue from likely false positives? What we do is we feed so many different data sources, EDR tools, antivirus tools, authentication, access, firewall data sets into our platform where we're able to enrich the the data and pull out based on our custom detectors, true malicious threats, surface them and respond to them. So clients can see all of our detections and incidents being worked through the portal while getting that clear reporting on the progress of their security operations. So this is effectively the ability to have an incident response team always watching over your shoulder.
0: I, I imagine you do like a lot of on-prem incident, like long, long form, I guess. I'm sounding like a journalist now. But yeah, like long form, you know, incident response with, um, you know, people who are actually going to go and work on site on major incidents. Um, you do that sort of work, right?
3: We do. Though interestingly, with pandemic, incident response is now mostly remote. Yeah. Uh, and so if attackers can get in remotely we're able to support remotely.
0: Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. But I guess what I'm asking is like, and even if they're remote, right? Like those big jobs, the big Mm long-term incident response jobs, it's the same people uh, who are working in the MDR SOC who are going out on those jobs or remotely doing those jobs. So so do you like rotate people through? Like what does that actual model look like? Do people spend, you know, two weeks in the SOC and then they're back out doing, you know, long-term incident response jobs for two weeks? Or how, how does that work?
3: So our our SOC team stays our SOC team. They are very very good at filtering through the detections and firing those alerts. Our, so you got the
0: SOC team, but then yep. they flag something, and then that gets spat out as what like a ticket that goes to the incident response team.
3: Exactly. So that hits our response off. So as soon as a as soon as our SOC team validates an alert and says this is a problem, it fires to our response operations team. And our response operations team is the exact same team that supports incident response investigations and our MDR customers. So
0: the SOC team are just doing detections, is that right?
3: That's correct, yep.
0: Yeah. So what's your what's your sort of, you know, detection engineering workflow? Like how much of that is the people in the SOC doing the detections who are coming up with the detection engineering versus the actual incident responders who might be diving a bit deeper into some of these incidents and finding interesting stuff. Is it both or are they working together or is it one or the other?
3: It is both. And that's the that's the beauty of this is that we have detection engineering from threat intelligence derived from incident response. What is fill in the blank nation state doing today? What is fill in the blank ransomware group doing today? Empowering our detection engineering. And then also, what are we seeing that's anomalous and suspicious within long-term monitoring customers? The same thing, and so uh, very much it's the snowball effect.
0: I'd imagine that you would aggregate an awful lot of the telemetry from your customers into one place. Do you have like a dedicated hunt team or is that, again, just a mix between those detection engineers and incident responders? You know, do you go like the other type of, type of phishing, right, where you just get that access to that big data set and you can you can go and start looking for malicious behavior that may not have been detected?
3: So, so I think a great example of that is anytime we see one of these big vulnerabilities and Log4J is probably still present in so many people's minds. Solar winds is still present in so many people's minds, and there are so many other vulnerabilities, or maybe it's a new Microsoft Exchange vulnerability where absolutely, the, the minute one of those hits, we're going to go out sweeping customer environments looking for the risks to help them get ahead of it. And then as we begin to see other indicators of compromise popping up across Uh, multiple clients where we see commonality that allows us to go dig deeper across all the clients as well
0: all right pierce and claire thank you so much for joining us on snake oilers to talk about what Kroll is doing in managed detection and response and uh you know uh, more hardcore incident response a pleasure to chat to you
3: patrick thank you so much
0: That was Piers Sinclair of Kroll there talking about the company's approach to running its MSSP service. Big thanks to them for that. And that is it for this edition of Snake Oilers. I do hope you enjoyed it. We'll be running part two of this Snake Oilers edition next week. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.